Matt Fuller. Congressman. <laughs> how, are you, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Do you miss me? I, I so miss you. I forgot that I, you know, I, I, in preparation for this, I listened to a few of these episodes and I really, li- I think I listened to all of the beginnings and I, I noticed you do this cordial chit chat and it's, <laughs> I was, I was curious how you're going to play this one, but, uh, do you miss me spot on? <laughs> it's kind of because I don't know how to start shows. <clears throat> I don't want to no do, way. yeah, There's I don't no want to, I don't really want to do a formal introduction. I don't like that kind of stuff. No. Um, I prefer to just be a conversation and, you know, we've known each other for quite a while, not like as good friends or anything, but I've known you in a professional capacity for quite a while. Yeah. So, um, that was one of the things I was, I was planning on talking to you about, cause I've never really gotten the take from a congressman about it. Like, um, when you cover Congress really closely, you see people every day, you might like text them. Um, and like ha- you, some people you might text every day, but <clears throat> you're never quite friends with them. Like you're not. <laughs> like, and I think that uh, most members kind of know, like, oh, this person could kind of destroy me at any given moment. And also, like, we kind of know, like, all right, uh, we have a really good relationship with someone. We're cordial. We're polite. Um, like, just human nature. You see someone in the halls, you give them the acknowledgement nod, right? Like, you know them. Mm-hmm. Um, but like there's a weird thing that you're like, you're not really friends with them. Like you can be friendly. You can go to dinner with them. Um, but still like, it's a weird relation. It's a, it's one of the weirder human relationships, I think actually. Well, how much do you worry about burning someone in such a way that they don't <clears throat> talk to you anymore? Um, not, not much. I mean, I've, I've had relationships that have been burned, but I've also had relationships that I've theoretically burned someone. And then, um, we've come out stronger uh, oddly enough, like it, it honestly depends on the member, but if I'm going to burn a relationship, um, it's probably for a good reason. And there's probably a really good story for it. Uh, most of the time, like how your relationships get burned or frayed on Capitol Hill is just that like you see someone starting to do all the wrong things. Um, and like, particularly with your generation of you know the 2010 class, uh, there was a lot of members who, um, started out, you came to Congress maybe with like an ideological focus. And frankly, like, I don't even care exactly what your ideology is, as long as you were there on a, sort of a principle and you believed in what you were doing and you were doing it in good faith. I mean, you might be wrong, but I could respect the fact that you at least believed what you were doing. And a lot of those members that I was, you know, very closely covering, I watched them sort of transform <laughs> into, you know, party line Trumpists. And, <laughs> a lot of people who didn't believe in what they were doing or were just completely brainwashed and and like had to make peace with what they were doing and didn't really care about the ideology. So, um, that's the, that's probably the, uh, more problematic and more common way that you burn someone become frayed. Is this the slow drumbeat of day to day, you know, Trump controversies that they didn't see the tweet or whatever. Um, so well, well, yeah, what is, reporting these days in other words (laughs) it it used to be at least ostensibly uh politically neutral now it wasn't really politically neutral but it it used to at least have this neutrality um, yeah but i feel like it doesn't have that anymore for example when you write 
uh, certainly when you tweet, you're not pretending to be neutral, right? No, I mean, uh, look, so um, I think the Daily Beast actually has it right. On the politics page of the Daily Beast, there's a tagline that says um, nonpartisan but not neutral. Um, I think anyone who says, you know, I am an objective automaton, um, they're just basically lying. Now, now I've worked at publications that try to maintain the most objective standards. CQ, uh, Congressional Quarterly, was like, we're not going to use the word only in front of a statistic. So it, it can't be only 19% because that would be injecting your opinion that it's only 19%. Um, and there's, by the way, you know, the New York Times, who, again, claims to be this objective arbiter of, of truth and everything, they make, you know, there's there's all sorts of biases. Uh, it's not just Republican and Democrat. There's biases, you know, towards drama or um, there's biases towards journalists have this weird bias towards three things happening just because, like, that's how it, it, it frames better in copy. Um, it's not a trend until there's three things. There's all sorts of weird biases. Um, and I think um, we've, in the last 10 years, really, um, lo- longer than that, too, but... 10 years, I think it's, it's been pretty dramatic that, <clears throat> and part of this actually is the rise of Twitter. I think, um, I think most outlets are letting go a little bit of the, we're going to be robots and we don't have any opinion at all. And I think you can still report truthfully and in some ways more truthfully, if you're being honest about, you know, where you're coming from and your own biases. Um, and I, and we can, you know, we can debate like like someone's position on uh, a budget bill probably more honestly if we start from sort of naming where we're coming from about, you know, do you believe that we should have a balanced budget? Okay, uh, no or yes. Like, let's start from there. Do you believe that it's okay for the government to run massive deficits? You know, do you, do you think, uh, is it feasible even for the government to, to get to, you know, a balanced budget in, let's say, 10 years um, all of those are like judgments, and I think Twitter, in a lot, a lot of ways, um, clued people into what reporters are thinking, and gave them a little insight into, you know, there's these conversations were always happening among reporters, but now they're kind of happening online for everyone to see, um, and for better or for worse, um, it, it's given us, I think, a little more honesty about how we report on these these things and where we're coming from. Do you think there's a risk though? by airing all of this out in the public that reporters start to get captured by their audience. Sure. In other words, um, you, you start to show that you are to the left or someone shows that they're to the right or whatever. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is then you are used as part of the fight. And you see that a tweet that you did that seems to aid one side or the other or hurt one side or the other is used in a political way. And it actually benefits you as a reporter because there are more eyeballs on something you wrote, yeah, and then and then you start to say, "Well, this is this is good business for me." Um, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> this is something I can I should do more of. And then when and then as your audience moves in a certain direction, you end up um, getting more captured by the audience, and there's yeah. no one there's no one left to support your other positions that are viewed as maybe so, opposing this audience. And so this isn't true for everyone, but first of all, I think it's a misnomer to conflate like, you know, views on a tweet or retweets as like helping me in any way. Um, I've never made a, a direct <laughs> dime off of my Twitter. Um, it largely doesn't matter, 
but I will say like, there's obviously a human response. Like, you know, what is going to click well, or like, you know, I, I, you spend enough time on Twitter and certainly this is true of you, you know how to make a tweet go viral, right? There's certain things you can say or add at the end of a tweet that will expose hypocrisy or make people say, Oh, I want to, I want to retweet that. I want to agree with, that. I want to share that in some way. Um, yeah, that can be dangerous. Like, let, let's be honest. Like, it's definitely changed the journalism model. But I would, I would say, um, to your point about like how people can use that against us or or how we can use it for ourselves, that was already happening, right? And it was happening without like journalists ever doing anything. I mean, journalists can go on there and tweet the most anodyne, objective facts, <clears throat> and someone's going to take offense to it. Someone will quote tweet it and use it in their own, they'll take, just create their own spin. I mean, that's one of the um, benefits and drawbacks of quote tweets is that like part of the old formula to make a tweet go viral was for, at least for a journalist was um, tweet some new piece of information, some new fact, and then throw a little snarky bit at the bottom. Now the quote tweet is objective fact from a journalist and someone just quote tweets it with the snarky little bit of commentary and that that tweet goes viral. Right. Um, so I think we'd be naive to think we're that's not already happening. Um, certainly it's happening on, on the GOP side that, you know, journalists are the enemy. I mean, I've certainly saw, saw that transformation um, over the last decade in Congress that there's just this, um, you know, antipathy that uh, wasn't exactly there. I mean, it was always a little bit of an undercurrent, but it's so strong now. And there's, and there's also that on the, on the left a little bit, like there's not, it's not, you know, no one sign has a monopoly on it, but um, certainly, um, you know, if you tweet something against leftists, they will come out against you and you will be the enemy or you want to tweet something critical of, of Nancy Pelosi. There are a lot of Nancy Pelosi stands who mm -hmm. will come after you and call you sexist and, you know, just another white man who's spouting off about Nancy Pelosi and she's the genius of every like you can't actually even fairly criticize her because the um, the backlash sometimes is so brutal against you. Yeah, but isn't it true that partisan tweets are the ones that are most viral like really, you said no, you, you said know i know how to make a tweet go viral but my view is tweets tend to go viral when they uh, when you you're talking about the two major sides the republicans and the democrats mm -hmm. when you say something that seems to strongly support one side or strongly oppose the other it's my sense that those are the ones that have the most um legs I, I mean, and, I think there's a selection bias here pro problem because, you know, for, for your perspective, particularly, well, I, I don't, you, your I tweet though, yeah, like my, when you went viral, it was, it was like, if you tweeted something anti-Trump, right. It would be like, here's a Republican calling it for what it is. And like every resistance Twitter person was like, you know, finally someone's speaking out. That's right. Yeah. Um, but like, honestly, this is a part of your, that's part of the, uh, the audience that you have, right. Um, I actually think the the most viral tweets are just ones that contain news, real news for for journalists at least. Um, but now that's different for people's different um, audiences. You know, like I have two hundred forty thousand followers. If I got uh, ten percent of them to retweet something, that that's a massively viral retweet, right? But it's only ten percent of my audience. Um, really, tweets that go super viral. They get, they get viral into a different audience, right? There's a, everyone always talks about black Twitter, okay? You get something that goes viral in black Twitter and that has another Twitter that's tangential to that and this audience, you know, that is connected to black Twitter might see it and then it goes 
crazy in another Twitter. Um, sometimes, you know, I have <laughs> a random tweet go viral in like movie Twitter. Okay. Like film Twitter. And, and you get some brutal backlash there too. But, um, I really think a lot of, a lot of the journalists thinking about how, how things are seen on Twitter and whatnot, that's very temporary. I mean, even when you see a tweet that's like, it's got a million views, like who cares? Um, that is not going to affect my life really. And frankly, people are just sort of like endlessly scrolling this stuff. And I, I don't know that it has much of an impact. I mean, sometimes it does, but more often than not, it's like a fleeting moment of whatever, you know? I don't know. I see some journalists. Uh, I mean, you might not call them journalists, but certainly some on the right, I especially see, who make a living off of getting their tweets to go viral. I mean, that's Let's how name, they. I mean, name names. Who, who's who's, who's <laughs> making a living off of it? Well, I mean, there's people like Jack Fazobic, I think, who sure, okay. do this kind of thing. And whether I mean, whether you want to call him a journalist or not, I mean, that's yeah. sort of for sure. He's making a living off of it. Someone, I mean, but I think he's getting paid somewhere. I don't know how he makes money. Okay, I yeah, I, assume, I just use yeah, him as an I just use him as an example. But like you want yeah, someone, like, there's clearly influence peddling, and there's uh, people chasing influence and retweets, and but like um, Twitter for sure is is more difficult to monetize than like Instagram, right? Like if I if I had the followers and the views that I had on Instagram, like I I could actually quit my job and do just that. Uh, on Twitter, like no one cares about, you know, like it'd be very difficult for me to actually make a living. You mean if you had as many, if you had as many followers, followers on, on yeah, Instagram as you have on Twitter? Out, yeah, I could figure something out to to make money and you know, paid sponsorships or whatever. Uh, oh, this I love this golf club. <laughs> like I don't know, um, <laughs> but um, on Twitter, like monetizing an audience like that is much more difficult. Um, and, and, and people do it like you're right. You are right. There are people who are able to do it. Um, I don't think most mainstream journalists are the ones doing it. It might come into, there are definitely ancillary effects to like having Twitter followers, like, right. Like you're more sought after for jobs or like you can maybe demand a higher salary, but, um, I think it's really more on the margins than people think. So when you are, meeting with members of Congress and you start to develop friendships with some of them, how do you prevent that? Or, or maybe you find some enemies like personal mm-hmm. enemies. You just don't like the person for whatever reason, <laughs> the person, the person rubs you the wrong rubs way. You wrong. <laughs> I've had, I've can, had those. can you prevent that from biasing your reporting or is it going to bias <clears throat> your reporting? And you're just going to I mean, be open about it. To, I mean, you ex- talked about, um, you know, being nonpartisan, but yeah, um, not neutral, not neutral. Yeah. I mean, look, um, a lot of the people who I reported on, right. Who I, I was actually very friendly with. Um, let's take Paul Gosar, for example. Right. Mm-hmm. I would never hang out with Paul Gosar. Um, I find his current views pretty despicable. He's basically an outright white nationalist. I didn't know that you know, 10 years ago, uh, seven years ago when I was really like talking to Paul Gosar every day, but generally he was a very, I, I, I didn't agree with him on most things, but he was cordial and he was polite and he would talk to me. And I think we had a pretty good relationship. Um, so what do you think happened there, by the way, as just, just to speak about <laughs> Paul Gosar generally, because I also had a relationship with him for many years. 
Yeah. He was in the House Freedom Caucus with me. And he was generally a pretty mild-mannered, kind of quiet guy. Other yeah. than, you know, you'd put him on the um, uh, on the committee and he would say some pretty wild things as a committee member, like on Oversight, yeah. for example. But because uh, I had a few times where people came after me on Twitter because they – are so my name – my, no, my nameplate – for because of the angle of the camera, my nameplate uh-huh. would be in Was front him? of Gosar. <laughs> yeah, so Gosar would be Gosar would be shouting something at someone, but it showed on the TV my nameplate in front of him. So I'd get people tweeting at me like, "Why are you shouting? What's wrong with you?" Yeah, and I'm like, "No, that's not me. That's Paul Gosar." I mean, it, to some extent, that might explain a little bit. I mean, I I think for one, Paul Gosar was probably a little more out there than either you or I knew. Um, yeah, I mean, time. apparently, apparently but I also, so. I mean. But I also think there's been a, a radicalization um, of Paul Gosard, and, and it's due to probably a large, a, a large number of things, not one thing. Um, but number one, like when you are being attacked for your opinions, right, or what you say, uh, I think it's really easy to go, oh, screw those people, they're wrong, and I'm right, and like you go into that foxhole mentality, and those people hate me, and I hate them. Right. And, and these people love me and I love them. Uh, I think that's like a natural human nature thing. I also think a lot of the Paul Gosar um, radicalization is due to his chief of staff, uh, who seems to be more naturally aligned with some of these um, things and has reinforced. Is this a um, new person? Um, he's been there. He was he was I think he was originally there for a minute. He left. Uh, he was like the LD, I think. I don't want to like I'm not. Yeah, yeah. Entirely sure on the on all the details, but I know he's the chief of staff there, and I know because um, we have reported on this a little bit that uh, that has been part of his like radicalization. That this chief of staff, who very clearly um, has an agenda himself, and I think has has really influenced Gosar to go in this very trolly. Because like, the other thing about this, um, and I, I, you might be more of an exception than than this, but your staff actually does have a lot of influence over you. Um, and I also think comm staff has a lot more influence than people realize. Now you mostly did your own comms. Like let's be real. That's right. Also I hired, I hired a, uh, an office full of introverts. <laughs> so like, like it was, yeah, I basically, I was like, I want people who I can identify with and, and, and I wanted kind of people who, you know, put their heads down and did the work professionally i wasn't looking for people to give me new strategies on how to reach people at home right and like um another example of this by the way just to i think it's it's more uh easily um identified is jim jordan right jim jordan is not doing his own tweets okay but if you look at jim jordan's twitter um there was a time by the way i remember like like him and mark meadows had like seven thousand twitter followers i don't know what jim jordan's followers are now it's like in the millions i think yeah not long ago he was he because i remember there was a time not many years ago like it wasn't that -hmm. that long ago when jim and i would jim and i would talk about this because i had way more twitter followers than he did and we would talk about my twitter because like in the entire house i was in the top five or ten or something in terms of followers this was all before the trump era came along right and and so Jim Jordan turned the keys over to a very young kid um, who now works for Christy Nome, And he came up with this persona for Jim Jordan. That was just this kind of troll, 
that was like this um a lot of people listen to this might know this name comfortably smug okay it's like really yeah. based off of off of that and um oh, by the way a lot of the republican party became kind of trollish like it it, it became about owning the libs rather than about an ideology yes. well mocker, mockery became a big part of the ideology in a sense Yes, and and um, his current communications director on the House Judiciary, which is um, has, uh, tweeted at me yesterday, ra- very randomly. Um, this guy Russell Die, like the, the, these are kind of young kids who, quite frankly, I think they'll look back and be mortified about their role in this, um, and, but maybe not. Maybe they'll be very proud of how they led their boss, but. Um, you know, Jim Jordan's another guy who, like, if you had a conversation with him, like, say you didn't know who he was and just had a random conversation with him out in the world, I think you'd find him to be a, a pretty reasonable person. Like, you would, don't talk politics with him. Just talk about anything. And mm-hmm. he'd seem like a really with it guy. Um, he's he's still, to this day, one of the best extemporaneous uh, speakers I've ever seen in Congress. Like, the guy could deliver a speech that seems perfectly crafted and it's just, like, off the top of his head. <laughs> um, and, like, who his persona is on Twitter as just this ultimate troll. Like that's not who he is, but that's who his staff is. And, you know, there's a Kurt Vonnegut quote that I throw around all the time. Um, it's, it's in the opening words of mother night, which is we must be careful who, who we pretend to be because we become who we pretend to be. And I think that's true for a lot of these Republicans, a lot of Paul Gosar's and Jim Jordan's, um, their online personas became who they are. In a, in a large part, and um, it's been it's been a trip to see. I don't I don't know how we got here, but <laughs> yeah, for for sure. I mean, I I know it as well or better than you do because I was close with these people. I worked with them yeah. in the House Freedom Caucus, and um, Jim Jordan is a, is a person who was a very good friend of mine um, when when we served in Congress, and was very kind, very polite, yeah, um, very mild mannered in person, not. Yeah not the kind of get in your face sort of person. He's just, he's mild mannered. Um, if anything, a bit deferential. Mm-hmm. So people used to be surprised when I would say this to them about Jim Jordan, I'd say, look, what you see in the committee is not the Jim Jordan in real life, but there is truth to what you said, which is something I warned them about, which is all of the acting about Trump where they were pretending to like Trump eventually just became them. Yeah. Um, They behind the scenes, the freedom caucus by and large, like the vast majority were not for Trump. Right. Initially. So if you look at the first year and a half, couple years of, of Trump, even in office, they would mock him. They would criticize him. Um, There were, big feuds between Trump and the House Freedom Caucus. Remember House, uh, House Freedom H-E-A. Caucus were his um, his en- his number one enemies as far as he was concerned. He said he needed to get rid of them. Yep. There's there's an actual Trump tweet where he says we need to oust these House Freedom Caucus members. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I remember there was a time when I think he had named three members of Congress as like his enemy. Yeah, and, um, and I was mad that I wasn't. No, no I don't. I wasn't listed. I was upset yeah. about it. <laughs> was it, but, was it Mark Jordan? Meadows? Raul Labrador and, and Jim Jordan, Jordan, I think Jordan. Yeah, I think yeah. that was it. Yeah. So imagine um, there was a time when he said Meadows, Jordan and Labrador for set aside Labrador for a second. Yeah. Who, well, uh, no, I mean, Labrador was it? almost his, he was almost a oh. cabinet secretary. I mean, 
Sure, but what I'm saying is, yeah, Labrador, you can't. Yeah. The personality wise, they are they are different. Um, yeah, yeah. Labrador never had the fiery pro-Trump personality. Um, he never mm-hmm. he never played that game in the same way mm-hmm. as as say a Meadows or a Jordan. Um, well, but I, and Labrador was more ideologically driven, probably than yes, for sure, yeah. for sure. Labrador is more ideologically libertarian than either Meadows or Jordan or Trump. Yeah, yeah. So. So um, there's a there's a difference there, um, but yeah, there was a time when the president, President Trump, was taking shots at the House Freedom Caucus, and I think mm-hmm. people forget that time. And those House Freedom Caucus members did not like Donald Trump, and I used to be um, there in the room with them and couldn't believe the things they were saying about Donald Trump, the th- things I would not say. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, hey guys, cool it. Like this, this is <laughs> like I know, like I know you guys I don't, don't like, like him. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't like him, but come on, it's it's not like he's not that. He's not like that kind of person or whatever. So I'm trying to cool them down, like trying to tell Mark Meadows, hey, like come on, he's not that bad. Yeah. So, um, what what bothered me was that they would say that stuff in private and then go publicly on TV and say how great he is and he's doing the right things. And I used to tell them, if you guys don't like him, what are you doing? Why are you going on TV and telling all of your supporters that he's a good guy and you agree with him and he's good on policy and all this stuff? You don't agree with him on policy. He's not conservative. Like I I was trying to convince them that if they held their ground – that the public would stand with them, but if you give him all of your credibility, if you if you lend all of your credibility to Donald Trump, then eventually they'll just be in his camp and they'll say, "We don't need you guys anymore. What do we need right. you for? We got Donald Trump." You had to stand. You had to stand firm against what he was doing from the beginning. And for those who say, because I I get this from the right all the time, oh, like orange man bad or like yeah, oh, right, no right, right, no right. no more mean tweets. It's mm-hmm. not about the mean tweets or orange man bad or anything. Donald Trump was bad on policy. Mm-hmm. Like, on if you are a conservative, now I'm a libertarian, but I grew up like in this conservative world, and of course, as a libertarian, I have cer- certain views that are viewed as very conservative and certain views that are viewed as very liberal or progressive. Um, but if you are a conservative, Donald Trump did not have conservative policy positions, at yeah. least not by any like modern traditional measure. Um, he he grew the budget. He expanded wars despite all of his claims. He expanded all these civil liberties violations. People were so worried about FISA, and he reauthorized FISA. So he did um, He did thing after thing. Civil asset forfeiture was expanded under Donald Trump. Things that uh, libertarians and conservative com- conservatives complain about today, Donald Trump expanded those things, and he wasn't good on policy. And so I used to tell them, if you don't like this guy on policy, then – what are you what doing? Is there to to like? Yeah. Well, what are you doing? To, yeah. What is there to like? First of all, <laughs> but what are you doing to support him? Because you're just giving away all your credibility to this guy. And then the um, maybe the the worst part about Donald Trump, his expansion of sort of willy nilly emergency powers, like where mm-hmm. he was like, I got to build a wall. I'm declaring it an emergency. Which now you'll see Republicans complaining about Biden using emergency powers in certain ways, or the or the whole COVID period where. Emergency powers were used in ways that Republicans were upset about, but when it came to Donald Trump and like building a wall, he was they were okay with that. They just said, "Fine, mm-hmm. go ahead," and it came back to bite them. and And it's like they can't put two and two together and see that 
well, they helped create this mess. But whatever the case, these people did change. Mm-hmm. And what was it from your perspective? Like what what happened that – Well, I mean that's a tough – first of all, I, I, I do want to get to that. But I, I want to say to your point, I think this was what um, so many liberals were disappointed with Paul Ryan about is that they knew in his heart of hearts Paul Ryan hated Donald Trump. Um, and also I think a lot of these people I, – I, on the policy, I think you're totally right. But also um, – be- who you are as a person actually matters in the white house and like point blank, Donald Trump is not a good person. I've seen no evidence that, that suggests this is a good man. Um, and like, I've had conversations with a lot of people who have real interactions with Donald Trump and none of them can really stand by and say, Oh yeah, this is a good person. Right. Um, so, and, and I, I think we learned that that matters. And I think um, yes, like exactly what you're saying that, the frustration that Republicans would just sort of go along with it and um, would use their credibility to bolster Trump and say, Oh no, he is great. He's actually doing a great job. Like, you know, Trump, um, that was, that was part of the transition. And I think that's actually goes to the, the question. Like that's part of the reason why they all kind of came along. Now there's like a, a number of um, <clears throat> like seminal moments that, you know, the one that really sticks in my mind um, as like the transition from people really hating Trump to being like, you know what, like, screw you guys, you're all the press is liars. I'm with Trump was Brett Kavanaugh. Like that was just this formative moment for some reason where um, if you I think so, too, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's other ones for sure. And like and it, was, and it was a slow it was not it was not one moment. It was 100 moments. But if I had to pick one like Kavanaugh. 2018 um, midterm elections because the other lesson that Republicans learned um, and like we talk about the blue wave of 2018, but that was actually blunted a little bit by some of the things like um, caravans, right? And like the Trumpist crap that they were like, if you go back and look at who won and who lost, there are races where you can literally point to like in Minnesota and say, oh yeah, you know, that, that Trumpist embraced the very end actually won that guy his seat. Um, so Republicans learned that lesson and they, and they, I think they were super fed up with, um, there's definitely like this, um, anti cancel culture mentality, uh, that has definitely like permeated the entire Republican party. Um, so, and they, like at some level people were just like, you know what? I'm with Trump. Like, like screw this. Like I, I actually enjoy the fact that this guy is so politically incorrect and, um, just says, horribly asinine things and gets away with it uh, because that's the direction that we need in this world. We need more of that and less of, you know, you say one wrong thing and you're canceled. Um, That I think was a big catalyst for Republicans. Um, There's a a ton of other ones, but I I do think, you know, uh, (laughs) there's this one, there's this one moment um, and you'll probably remember this. I think it was, I think it was, it might've been exactly a week after Trump was elected he comes to the um, Republican conference meeting. Uh, he doesn't come. Sorry. He doesn't. Um, Kathy McMorris Rogers, they had, this is the first Republican conference meeting. And Kathy McMorris Rogers, then the conference chairwoman, buys everyone a MAGA hat. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I bet you being in that room, it was really interesting because you could see people very tentatively like some people took the hats, some people put them on. 
Um, whatever the number of people who like, whatever you think the number of Republicans who voted for Trump, uh, of like actual members of Congress voted for Trump, it's so much far lower than whatever people think. If people think there's only 10 members who didn't vote for Donald Trump, I, I think it's, it's at least 30% of the conference didn't vote for Donald Trump. That's my oh, Okay. Well, that brings up something interesting, which is to my knowledge, to my recollection, both Liz Cheney. Mm-hmm. And Adam Kinzinger have said they voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020. Mm-hmm. Doesn't this make them the same kind of performance artists that we're talking about with everyone else, where they are pretending now <clears throat> that they are so high and mighty, they've come in and they've they've stood strong against Donald Trump, when in November of 2020, they voted for Donald Trump? So I would... I would, first of all, I bet you Liz Cheney did vote for him in 16. I have a feeling she probably didn't vote for him in 20. I would bet Kinzinger did not vote for him either time. <laughs> that's, but that's, they say they did. I know. I, I, and, and in some ways that may, might even make it worse. But I will but say. But isn't the, isn't the same kind of performance artistry BS that dri- some, it, but, it drives me crazy? I see this stuff. I'll see them go on TV now or. Um, you know, Kinzinger tweeting about how Donald Trump is like the the most abhorrent person. I can't believe this person was ever president. Oh, and by the way, I voted for him November 2020, says Kinzinger. Yeah. But but he's the worst thing that's ever happened well, look, to this I, country, I, according I think... to how can that how can that be anything <laughs> other? How can that be anything other than pure like BS performance artist? I don't know, double I, I BS. Think, like. I mean... Look, I, where it, where they're trying to they are trying to capitalize on something they know they're on the outs in the Republican Party they've got nowhere to go mm-hmm. and so they're only in now is I'd better get in with the anti-Trump like full on anti-Trump I'm with the left on all this so, stuff so I don't know if I exactly believe I mean there's an extent that I think that's fair but I will say number one like I want to believe in a certain sense of restorative justice I want to believe that um, if someone has, you know, someone realizes that like Donald Trump is bad, there's a pathway for them to say, you know what? I was wrong before and I was lying to you and this is a bad person I want. And I would also say like there, Liz Cheney has, has come out against Trump to the absolute detriment of her political career. She was the number three Republican. Um, she was, like she had a fast track here she, to probably being a vice president and one at what but, one but day. Matt she waited she waited until it was too late and then she Look, took it's never she too took late. <laughs> hey she took a leap no it, if she's talking about January 6th as being some kind of moment for her where like this I can't believe this happened that's an astonishing thing to say for someone who is in the Republican conference mm-hmm. for those four years claims to have voted for Donald Trump twice. Should have seen all of this stuff coming, and then afterwards pretends like, "Oh, I can't believe this happened, and I'm horrified by it, and I, we need to stop it." Well, and and also, she, I think, and Kinzinger. I'm not, I'm not saying that they ever liked Donald Trump, right? Just like Paul Ryan, I don't think that these two liked Donald Trump. I think they probably did vote for him. Since it's yeah. a weird, it's a weird thing to say you voted for him if if you didn't, especially after the fact. Like now, you know, they they've got nothing to lose by saying um, they they didn't vote against, uh, didn't vote for him. But 
These are people who waited and waited and waited. And I think when they saw the Republican Party maybe finally to ta- taking a turn against Donald Trump, they said, now's our chance. Now's our chance. After January 6th, I think what they saw was, now's a chance. We never liked this guy. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like McCarthy's going to turn on him. It looks like McConnell's going to turn on him. We've, we are listening to the floor speeches. We're sort of yeah. hearing the buzz. The Republican Republican parties turning back in our direction is what they were thinking. And so now is the time to make the leap and say we're against him and we're we're full on anti-Trump. And what I think they didn't expect was that within a week of doing so, a whole bunch of Republicans would flip back the other way and say no 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 we're we're actually yeah, still with I mean, still I... we're actually still with Trump. And so that left these too high and dry. They're just left hanging there. But but I mean, Liz Cheney wasn't left high and dry. I mean, there was a pathway for her. She was still the conference chairwoman, um, and she every she day, to, every oh, day she was look, getting bashed. Well, no, but look, the reason she had to go was she kept on bringing up January six. She kept on she she wouldn't let it go. There was a pathway for her, uh, particularly after you know there was that vote where um, they brought forward like the vote of no confidence, and at the same time. Marjorie Taylor Greene was facing um, this backlash and basically the, the um, this is like February or late January of 2021. The solution was everyone gets a pass, right? Like we're just going to, we're basically the, the two cancel each other out. We're a party. We're going to stick together and it's fine. And if Liz Cheney wanted to just, if she wanted to continue on with the power, I mean, frankly, she has made sacrifices to speak this truth. Like that's just, just objectively true. Um, you can call her a, you know, like a, a clout chaser. Um, I think it may be more true for Kinzinger than, than Cheney, but Cheney has made this move knowing that it might be her political career. And, it, and by the way, it has been for Kinzinger, right? He's not even like running for reelection. Cheney at least has like a primary that she might win, um, but also might not. I mean, she's, 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 she's basically ostracized from the, from the Republican party. Um, she has no power in the house at this point, um, but she's doing this, I think, at some degree of political cost. So, yes, like, like, let's be real about there are incentives for someone to come out against Donald Trump, just as there were incentives, by the way, for you. But um, I do think like people um, should what, have what, an avenue. What what what, inse- what did I gain from it? Well, I mean, look, there I've been trying to ever no, ever, no, ever since so to so show you the difference, <laughs> to show you the difference here. When when I made my statement about the Mueller report, first mm-hmm. of all, I took a month uh, from April 18, which is my birthday by the way, the the freaking Mueller report came out on my birthday. I took a I took a month. <laughs> it was a, what a wonderful birthday, right? I took a month from April 18 to May 18 to read this thing carefully, analyze it before I made any statement about it. Mm-hmm. And then I made a calculated decision that I did not want to be part of the politics of this. I wanted to make my statement because I felt I owed it to my constituents mm-hmm. to read the, to read the Mueller report and tell them what it said. And yes, I would keep tweeting when I felt it was appropriate to like make a statement about a particular topic or to add to the conversation because something is being said in the news. But 
I had many opportunities, was offered opportunities all the time to go on CNN, MSNBC, all sorts of media, um, including sort of uh, like national late night shows, other things that I turned down specifically because I did not want to be used in a way that I felt was political or mm-hmm. I felt was um, – would make it look like I was doing this for some kind of gain because I wasn't, I wasn't interested in it. It didn't, it certainly was not um, beneficial to me politically in any way. It obviously well, look, made, look, it made I, every, I mean, it made every route harder. But the difference is I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016 mm-hmm. and then suddenly change my mind about him and decide like, Oh, like he suddenly <laughs> like, like he was a good guy before and now he's a terrible guy. I had a, consistent view of him from the beginning i saw what was coming Mm -hmm. i was um honest about the areas where i thought he was right and there were some policies where i agreed with him and then honest about the areas where i disagreed with him instead when i was in need of people to actually stand up to him when i was a republican and i needed others to come and, and say like yeah this was um this was wrong what was going on in the Mueller report but moreover his policies were bad when I needed people to do that, I didn't have Liz Cheney helping me out. I didn't have – I also didn't have my Freedom Caucus allies helping me out. Mm-hmm. So I don't but know my, why my, I should feel sympathetic <laughs> to well, any of these no, people my, about any turn after the fact when it's too late. The guy has been voted out of office. My, my point is on the whole, it might have been politically the wrong move for you, but there were at least – you know, there are drawbacks and there are benefits. There were benefits for like, it's not like a totally net loss that you said, uh, you know what, like, no, no, internally there's a benefit because I believe in standing on my principles. Right. But that makes me feel good. But even politically, I think, um, you know, there's people who say, Oh, like there was this turn, right. Where there was a moment, um, probably before the Mueller report came out and probably even before, um, Trump was in office that there are some Democrats who who you say, you know, in fact, I heard this frequently, like uh, you were probably Democrats favorite Republican. And it was because what for whatever you could say about, you know, Justin Amash and, and bad votes he took or whatever, people genuinely knew that you believed what you were saying and doing. And that was a very rare um, attribute in Congress. OK, that is a extremely internal view and when you decided to come out and say hey you know what i'm you know he probably should be (laughs) impeached for this behavior um it certainly looks like he did collude with russia the report did not say hold on hold on just to correct you you it was not for it was not for collusion with russia it was for uh, obstruction Obstruction of justice yes obstruction but but i will say because you you also noted i want to make sure we're clear about this matt because i get this all the time the Mueller report did not ha- show enough evidence for collusion with Russia. But but also, I so wanna, I want to I, I want to be clear about that. So when okay, I want to so be clear about that, it didn't hold on, hold on, hold on. That there was no collusion. It did not. It, it in fact explicitly right. I, says. I'll give you it, that. Yeah. I, I'm not saying that there was no evidence, but I want to be clear that when I said that he should be impeached, I was not yeah. talking o- about over the obstruction co- of justice. Oh, over obs- very clear. 
over yeah. obstruction, not over collusion, because Mueller report had two parts, and the first part was over collusion, and the second part was over obstruction. And from my reading of the first part, I did not think there was sufficient evidence to uh, charge him with collusion, to have mm-hmm. a finding like for an, an impeachable um, charge of collusion. But I did think that there was enough evidence for an obstruction charge. So I just want to be clear about that because yeah, I, I just want to make I, sure because you had, I also, yeah, you had I, said I, it I'm the wrong way. words so. in your mouth, but I will, I will also note because um, I, I just think it's such a misnomer that people say, well, the report said you know no collusion, which a lot of that was based off of Barr's interpretation of the report and then like Trump just sort of claiming, you know, it says no collusion. The report actually explicitly says um, in some cases the Trump campaign took um, like <laughs> – help from from russia russian assets in some cases they rejected it that's actually what it says um and like they they don't really make sense of that but yes you're totally right that there while there's a very unclear case on the collusion and russian part uh there's a very open and shut case on obstruction of justice his attempts to fire uh Mueller. i mean there it's 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 an incredible report if people actually read it um so and it, it, it Stick six with me that Democrats never really did anything with that. Well, sure, and that that was one of the big issues is that Nancy Pelosi was unwilling to go anywhere with it really for quite a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came out and and called for impeachment before Nancy Pelosi did. So, well, Nancy Pelosi I mean, never called for impeachment. That's so, it. I mean, this is, <laughs> when we said this before about how Nancy Pelosi's like the Nancy Pelosi stands can sometimes be brutal. Um, there were a lot of reporters pointing out that hey, Nancy Pelosi is actually not backing impeachment and then they'd go well of course she is she said literally said impeachment's too good for him right well what does that mean like right. are we gonna know, draw and quarter him it's uh but it's a classic uh, i don't know pelosiism Pel- Pel- pelosiism like it, yeah. it's how she it's how she talks which but, is to- but, but she never got to impeachment and that and and so when reporters were calling that out um i still get you know tagged into things like oh you mean the woman who impeached donald trump twice and it's like well it wasn't over the Mueller report <laughs> you know like in both instances they they gave democrats a very another very clear shot at impeaching him um she never got behind impeachment is the truth yeah uh, and so- probably did more than anyone to 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 preserve his uh unimpeachable status for the, the Mueller report so it wasn't my intent to relitigate any of this Mueller stuff anyways here <laughs> but i i want to i want to just go back to this this point about Cheney, Kinzinger, Kinzinger, and others. Yeah. At at one point, is it like how do we do, how do you differentiate between someone changing their mind on something mm-hmm. and someone just being an opportunist? Because what I saw in Congress time and again was members of Congress being opportunists. They would say something one day. And as soon as the political tide turned and mm-hmm. they felt it was in their political interest to say something else, they would say that other thing, which again goes back to this this point. I mean, it's why we brought up the Mueller report. I have not changed my tune on stuff. In other words, after the Mueller stuff came out, I got a huge audience of people who are from the left, people who were like, yeah, Justin Amash is so honest, etc. Right, right. But those people – but those people still do not like my views because my views have not changed. I'm not trying to embrace this. For some people, uh, being anti-Trump became the whole personality. And mm-hmm. I think that the reason it became the whole personality is because it's opportunistic. 
I think an opportunistic person doesn't have it overwhelm their personality. But we have seen this with many public figures, a lot of people on the right who at one point or another, maybe they came out what I would call too late, but they turned against Trump and then suddenly it became like their whole reason for existence, mm-hmm. which which is not at all what happened with me. Like I have the same views that people on the left are quite often not going to like and some of, some of my views they'll like very much. But certain views – Guns, for example, I've mm-hmm. tweeted about this. People on the left are not going to like my views by and large. Yeah, um, I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, I stand quite firm on a Second founder Amendment. Of the Second Amendment. Yeah, founder. right. That's that's right. So my point is, I haven't changed any of that, but it suddenly it seems that some of these people, like um, Adam, is a good example of this, where his views. He was never like a super conservative Republican, I'll put it that way. But No, he was a McCain Republican. But I would say that his views have definitely shifted to the left since all so, of this stuff. I mean, let, but let's so I, I if you want to dissect it, right? Um so what is opportun- level, what is opportunism a, and what is a change of heart? Well, let's let, I, I think one one man's opportunism is one another man's um identifying political incentives and like that there's no way to be half half pro Trump. And I, and by the way, we've, we've seen members try this, right? Uh, tonight we get to see, um, Nancy Mace and Tom Rice both be halfway anti-Trump. Okay. (laughs) And like, um, it doesn't work out for members who are, who are halfway in, right. Didn't work out for for sure. That's for sure. Right. Um, so you, I think for, and this is by the way, by and large a Republican issue, you have to choose whether you're going to go full anti-Trump, but, or, you're going to have to, or you have to live with the insanities of, of Donald Trump and just sort of swallow it and grin and, and be fine with it. Uh, because there, but Matt, yes, there there's, there's a difference, but there's a difference between like, I agree with you on this. You, you can't be like halfway. And I think when you say that, what you mean is there are people who don't really want to get to the heart of any of the criticisms. They kind of want to mm-hmm. dance. They kind of want to dance around it a little bit or say they're, sort of like with the Trump movement generally, but they're like, there are some things they disagree with Trump. But I'm uncomfortable with. Yeah, they're uncomfortable or they, yeah. they kind of dance around it. I agree with you that that does not work politically, but that doesn't mean that your whole personality has to become this anti-Trump personality. Uh, I never accepted the phrase never Trump. People mm-hmm. like to say there are never Trump Republicans or never Trump people. I've always rejected that term. Because I'm not never Trump. I'm just always liberty or always constitution. Always Amash. <laughs> I'm always I'm always Justin Amash. I am who I am. And and I see in a lot of people that they end up going like as soon as they turn enough against Trump, it becomes like their whole personality. It's almost like yeah. they like live and breathe and sleep disliking Donald Trump and I cannot relate to it at all not because I think Donald Trump was a good president as you know I do not think so but because there's more to life than just obsessing over Donald Trump well, every day like have have your own perspective on things tweet about something else there are other subjects out there too and and we have a different president Joe Biden who in my opinion is not doing a very good job and has many of the flaws, not the same. I'm not trying to equal, you know, equalize them and equate yeah. them, but many flaws like Donald Trump, and we should be criticizing this president as well. 
So you you brought up uh, an important point that is something I've been thinking about so much, which is like how how political identity has just become just it just means identity at this point. And um, a lot of that, like, you know, growing up, um, I had aunts and uncles who disagree with me politically, who were, you know, maybe like Newt Gingrich Republicans. But at the same time, like, they were still my aunts and uncles. And like, you know, we could get along. And, and now I have those same people who are Trump Republicans, and it's who they are, right? This is foundational to who I am as a person, just as on the on the left, by the way, you have people who are like, well, I can't talk to Republicans because like what they stand for, they stand for kids in cages and like it, this belief, you know, they, they want to murder school children. Like there's this very extreme sense. And I think it's deteriorating society. Like we can't, you know, you, every Thanksgiving you get the guide, like how to, how to talk to your conservative uncle or how to, uh, you know, talk to your dipshit uh, nephew who liberal nephew. And it's like, we didn't need that. Like we could, there was a, there was a point in the world in society, at least when I was growing up that, you know, people had different political views and that was okay. And now it's like incomprehensible to us that like a Democrat and Republican could be married to like Kellyanne Conway and, and George Conway could be together. I mean, that's that's that one is a, that one is a difficult one to explain in some ways, but (laughs) so, so I, I get your say. Let's, let's, um, let's move away from this topic because okay, we've spent too much time. No, we've spent too much time on it. It's, it's more time. I, I knew we couldn't avoid it having you on and we haven't talked to each other. We haven't talked in a while, but, um, but I, I don't want to stick to just this topic. Yeah. Uh, okay. Are members of Congress worse than typical people? Um, God, uh, no, probably because at, at every level um, now there are some dumb members, but even the dumbest members have something that there there's some intelligence there. There's some um, savvy. Well, but are you saying they're are you saying they're better than typical people, or are you saying they are just representative of they're the population? Pretty, honestly, that you know this is a this is actually a great question, and I think it's they're pretty representational. Like every member of Congress, I think. Uh, to an extent, you know, like I on Tuesday nights, Louis Gomer used to take uh, his constituents on his little capital tour. And I, I used to love it because I'd, I'd be walking in and there'd be this line of people from Tyler, Texas. OK, and you meet them and you're like, you know what? I get it. Like, I get why you love Louis Gomer. Um, you Louis Gomer is a product of that nagadocious Tyler, Texas spirit. Uh, a place where there's a, um, uh, I think it's the world's largest Sonic burger. Okay. Like that is kind of, there's a sense of that. And there's a sense of that, by the way, for you, for your particular district where there's, I think there's a, a real independent streak. Um, there's a real uh, a respect for someone who makes up their mind um, independent of politics a little bit, like, which by the way, is part of the reason why uh, I think people tolerate Peter Meyer being a little bit halfway anti-Trump. Like he's a little bit pregnant on the anti-Trump stuff himself. Um, so like every member is a really good representation. There are members who are there purely for the pin and the staff and the prestige. And that truly sucks. And then at the same token, there are people who are multimillionaires who are doing this out of a love of, of government and 
uh, a love of like their country who are making real sacrifices. And like, I can tell you, you know, they get up every day. Like Jim McGovern is not a celebrity. Jim McGovern gets up every day and tries to make childhood poverty a little bit better than it was the day before. Right. Rosa DeLauro is like, I'm going to go solve the fact that women can't get, um, uh, baby diapers. Like I'm going to go solve that issue in America. And so to an extent, like, yes, there are people who suck because they're vacuous, empty people who just want staffs and, and power. But the, on the same side, there are other people who, who are there who are ideologically driven, who are there at, at some expense to themselves. Like John Yarmouth hasn't taken a dime from Congress. He just donates every dime of it. These are people who are there to do good and believe in government and they believe in Congress and they believe in the power of the legislature. And like that, I think, is a, still a very powerful thing. So I don't think it's you can't answer it one straight way. Like it, it really depends. But probably on the whole... Um, because you're measuring a lot of people who are making sacrifices and are trying to do good things, um, I would say they're probably better than the average. Now, you person. just mentioned a bunch of Democrats. Most people listening might not know those names. Are there are there Republicans <laughs> or anyone outside of the Democratic Party, or is this a uh, there? Oh. There used to be. I mean, I I would have I would have thrown you into that that mix. Um, Thank but you. But the party the party has been overtaken and. Um, even if you came to Congress, like there's a lot of guys who I think in your class, okay, who 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 believe that they came to Congress because they're going to balance the budget, right? Or they're gonna they're gonna take down, you know, uh, the executive branch's overreach of power, and they came here and they had that belief. And I honestly, I, I might have bought into it a little bit too, uh, but a lot of them were lying to themselves about why they were really here. Right, I and mean, we can name. Do you names think they were lot, lying? Like, yeah, but Duncan. do you think they were lying, or they got there and they quickly realized this wasn't going to work out? Uh, probably a little bit of both. Like, like, look, I'll, there's a lot of trappings about being a member of Congress. Okay, it is cool to have your own staff. It's cool to have that power, and um, it's cool to you have a front row seat to history. Okay, and sooner uh, or later, you start to think, you know. I could um, play the game a little bit and get on energy and commerce and maybe I could write some cool bills and like, Hey, after I retire, maybe I can make seven figures being a lobbyist. Right. If I get that uh, subcommittee chairmanship, but I play the game a little bit and because the game, by the way, is, is rigged that way. Okay. <laughs> it really is a system like that. It wants you to stay in line. It wants you to support the party, vote with your party, say yes or no, cut a check to the NRCC or the DCCC, Play the game. Uh, and there are a lot of incentives for the game. Um, so <laughs> a lot of those people who thought they came here because, you know, we're going to throw the bums out and we're going to redo Washington and we're going to, you know, the hell no caucus, that turned into hell yes. Like <laughs> there's a lot of people going to Capitol Grill uh, who are um, the trappings of Washington, D.C. and the power of being a congressman and the power of the pin. Or as your good friend Thomas Massey says, my precious, <laughs> right? right? Um, and there's a lot of things we could say about Massey, by the way, if you want to go down that direction too. But um, yeah, I mean, like, I, it's, it's, I, I don't see many Republicans at this point who are here for the right reasons. I would say that, okay, because you have to make it. There's the deal with the devil that you have to make because to be a Republican at this point really means to be pro-Trump first and foremost, and um, to do that, like, 
I don't, I don't, I don't see the Republicans who are here and saying, I want to, you know, I want to help someone who are, who are, who's going to Congress and saying, I want to, I want to address this one issue and I want to make it someone's life easier who has this particular issue. Like, you know, for all the horrible things you could say about some of the leaders, like even like Eric Canner or something like that, Eric Canner still had bills that like the, um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact name, but it was like this, it was uh, this brain cancer bill for a little girl, Gabriella something. Yeah, I remember. And, and like he did something and he could, he could point to it and say at the end of the day, like I did that. I made that person's life. I made pediatric cancer a little bit easier to deal with. Right. Um, and like, I just don't see. I'm not seeing that from many members, particularly on the Republican well, side. Well, isn't it because the whole thing has become so top-down, centralized, and there is actually no legislative process anymore? Like you don't oh, really. I, this was the primary. thing Okay, because you talk don't to really, you actually. don't really have the same kind of process. And I'm not saying that 10 or 12 years ago, when I was just getting into Congress, that the process was fantastic or anything, but. There was some sense in which you felt like you could make a difference. You could come in, mm-hmm. you might write some piece of legislation that would get a vote, you might write an amendment that would get onto the floor for a vote. And it seems to me that nowadays everyone in any party feels like they don't really have that much power. You can ask Democrats this who are in the majority – Right, they're the majority, sure. but you could ask rank and file Democrats, and I would bet you that they feel like they. If you ask them their true feelings, they might not say it on the air, but if you ask their true feelings in private, I I'll bet you the mo- that most of them would say I don't really have that much power to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And doesn't that then breed a certain kind of representative? In other words, like sure. The, sure. the ones who are there, they start to modify their behavior. And then the people watching at home, they start to say, like, well, I guess this is like the entertainment industry. And that's how you get people <laughs> like Madison Cawthorn showing up and saying, I yep. want to be a congressman. Everyone wants to be a congressman now as long as they can go and they can tweet some things that get them, you know, a more yeah, notoriety. notoriety. So, I mean, this was this was the primary thing I wanted to talk to you about. And I, I, I actually – I'm hoping you'll sort of recount it. There's nothing uh, explosive about what I'm going to say. But I'll, I'll just sum up a conversation that you and I once had. And you can – if you want to take it away, <laughs> which is – because I, I think it's actually one of the more instructive things I've ever learned about Congress. And it, it just so rings so true, which is that in Congress, like, people have this belief that lobbyists are writing you checks and then you and you go do the lobbyist bidding and that's just like not the case how it actually works is leadership says we're going to vote on this bill in this way and it's coming up for a vote on next tuesday um and we need you to vote yes no no yes on these four amendments um and or you know and also by the way there's there are some political pressure like heritage action says we're going to key vote these four amendments yes no no yes right um that's actually how Congress works. And it, and it works maybe a little bit differently because I know you've had this experience at the state level that lobbyists actually do have more power because like state reps are more reliant on their information and them to actually say and do things. But um, yeah, I mean, it's so leadership driven mm-hmm. and that's been the, that's probably a, a Gingrich change and it's just been, it's just gotten worse and worse as we, as we, yeah. And I think a lot of it is because of the, um, 
the public facing nature of Congress, that Congress is always on TV. It's a 24 seven thing. People know, um, to the extent they know anyone, they know their congressman or senator, Mm -hmm. right? They don't know necessarily their state representative, state senator. Um, they don't know their county commissioner. They're not really that familiar Mm -hmm. with these people. These people do not get on TV all the time. They're not tweeting things to large followers. You know, they have like, um, they have maybe you know a thousand, yeah, hundred thirteen followers. followers or something. So, <laughs> yeah. so they don't they don't have the same ability to reach people, and as a result, the the institution at the state level is not as centralized. It becomes it becomes mm-hmm. naturally more decentralized because there is not this focus on um like a few leaders and what are they doing and are they getting it done it's much more um it's much more devolved like you just it, it goes uh bottom up in a certain way compared to what happens in congress now i'm not saying that state assemblies or or legislatures are completely decentralized or anything like that they, they still have right, they right. still have leadership teams they still strong arm people etc but because they're not on the news 24/7 the leadership team does not have the same ability to strong arm you. Like it doesn't have the same yeah. effect. That that leader in a state legislature, that um, speaker of the state house, also has only 113 followers on Twitter and just doesn't have mm-hmm. doesn't have the reach really to make you pay when you don't fall in line. What happens at the state level is the lobbyists come into your office and they've got some money for you, and that money can make a bigger difference to you than your speaker of the house can make, you know, in terms of whether you're right. going to make it or not, because in a, in a state legislative job, you're talking about, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars being a big deal. Whereas in Congress, you're talking in the many millions now to run, uh, yep. to run a campaign. And the only way to survive <laughs> in Congress then is to stick with your leadership team. It's very centralized and they will tell you what to do. And then they will make sure that you get the lobbyist money if if they feel you deserve it or their, or their money, money right? They can run a they they can run a they can literally give it to you, but they can also have a fundraiser. Sure, where, and and Nancy know, and Nancy up. Pelosi is raising more money than anyone else, and Kevin McCarthy is raising more sure. money than anyone else. So they have the bucks to dole out, and over time, what happens is the power begets more power because. Uh, the lobbyists themselves start to understand all the power is in these leaders. The power is not in handing this check to this low-ranking person. The power is giving mm-hmm. some more power to Nancy Pelosi to have her hand out checks. So they understand yep. they understand where it is. So everything becomes centralized and it becomes all top-down. And as a result, members of Congress uh, – this is hard for people at home I think to relate to. I mean they may – they may like believe in their hearts these are bad people, etc. But I don't think it's just that they're bad people. All the incentives are wrong. In other yeah. words, I think yeah. they're basically just regular people in a world with really bad incentives. And if you stuck pretty much anyone from the public in Congress, the vast majority would just do the same things because the incentives are so one-sided where you are just to fall in line with leadership. <clears throat> and well, you all- well, let's be clear. You also get there because you're a party lawyer. Yes, that's right. right. Like the NRCC says, oh, you should run for this seat and we'll support you. 
And like they do that because they already know that you're going to support the party. Like it, it's a self-selection thing that, you know, it begets more of that centralization yeah. too. And, and in a world of no policies, in other words, in a world that we see today where uh, members of Congress don't really write legislation the way they used to, they don't really mm-hmm. offer amendments the way they used to. In that world, what are you going to do to differentiate yourself? You're going to go tweet some crazy stuff, right? You're going to mm-hmm. go on TV and say something totally crazy. That's how you differentiate yourself yeah. by going viral in some way and saying, look, I'm different. I'm standing up for, for you in one way or another. They can't actually do it through legislation, so they're doing it vocally by using their audience. And yeah. um, and it's something that you know I called it a partisan death spiral when I when I left the Republican Party, but it's something that is hard to reverse because it it's self perpetuating and also it it feeds on itself and grows. Like the more it happens, the more it happens. I'll give you an example. If uh, members of Congress aren't allowed to offer amendments on the floor. Like which they're not anymore. You basically, to, to the extent yeah. you haven't had an open yeah. rule since Paul Ryan's first. Uh, year, so so twenty six. You probably had in your life. I mean, Boehner. There was they used to have the appropriations ones, but uh, you've probably experienced twenty. Yeah, yeah. John Boehner, if you're listening, come on this podcast. I'd love to talk to you about this because he he ended <laughs> yeah, up yeah, being yeah. Ma, you're, you're crazy, because dude. he ended up being <laughs> as bad as he was, and as much as I I wanted to oust him and tried to oust him. And I would do it again. <laughs> mm-hmm. As, uh, despite all that, he was the best speaker that I had during my time there. And the the floor was more open under John Boehner than under any speaker I, I served under. So um, when you imagine a Congress now where you can't offer even amendments on legislation and you, and you mm-hmm. say there's been no open rule for those who are unfamiliar – uh, an open rule means where you go to the floor and you can just stand up at the appropriate part of the bill and you can offer your amendment. And if it's germane to the bill uh, at, at that particular part, you, you get, get a, a vote. vote. There's no no one's going to stop you. But but <clears throat> set aside the fact that there's no open rules. Even the structured rules work very different from when I started. It used to be that if you're even if they had a structured rule, which means you have to offer it to the rules committee which is essentially run by the Speaker of the House. So you have to offer it to the Rules Committee, and the Rules Committee decides whether you get a vote on it. They used to be more liberal and open about this. They used to say, look, if it's not like totally out of left wing or right wing, like some kind of like, you know, totally crazy amendment, we'll allow it. Like if it's if it's batshit crazy or whatever, we're not going to, you know, we're going to cut it off. Yeah. But if it's if it's a rational, reasonable amendment, even if it's something they're against, we'll allow it. This is at least in the early days. Now, over time, that became less and less. So now you can't really get anything onto the House floor unless the Speaker thinks it's going absolutely nowhere, like it has no chance of passing, or it doesn't do anything, like an amendment to you know do another – some kind of report. study or yeah. report and it costs a yeah. billion dollars yeah. or something and that's to pay for the staff who are doing it and that's it. It doesn't really amount to much of anything. If it doesn't do something like that, so n- nothing at all really or um, has no chance of passing, it's not getting out to the floor. Now, if you're a member of Congress and you know 
that you can't amend legislation. And you also know that media in this fast-paced world are not reading the bills either. They're not reading. Like if you get like a 500-page bill, like you're not reading it if, it's, if we have to vote on it the same day. I mean just to be fair, it, most bills like you can have a 500-page bill that does largely nothing. Yeah, sure. Right? Like a land transfer bill. And like it, it doesn't even make sense. Like you, it would be. It's so pointless to. You're not going to write about it or cover it. In any yeah, yeah. Way. and I'm not. Uh, and this is true. This of is not a. Um, this is not a criticism of particular members of the press because you're doing a job, mm-hmm. and in some ways, your job has changed too. All I'm saying is like, I'm not trying to. There's some sense in which I'm not saying um, these members of Congress are all at fault for this. I'm saying these are regular mm. people who are trapped in a system that is incentivizing them in all the wrong ways. And yeah, it's yeah. true that they may, you know, uh, break down and they may be unprincipled in many ways, but they're like, uh, f- most people would not find what they're doing out of the ordinary, given the incentives. In other words, like you put an average person up there, they would, they would act pretty similarly. What I'm saying is when you know that the media aren't really going to cover it, in any significant way. They're not going to cover all the details of the legislation. They don't know. They're not reading it either. If, if you got a thousand page bill and you have two days to read it, they're not reading it either. If you know all that and you can't amend bills either. Yep. It creates a situation where one, you stop offering amendments altogether because you have, if you mm-hmm. know that you're going to waste your time, you're going to go to the rules committee, let's say, and you have to sit there two hours waiting for them to decide whether they're going to take your amendment and you have to at, at, midnight, at midnight and you're talking to the <laughs> rules committee. And I used to do this. I used to go to the rules committee and I might have to sit there for two hours, three hours, listen to other things going on. It'd be late at night. And then at the end of the day, I would offer an amendment to something and I'd say, um, I want to you know, offer this amendment. And what would end up happening is they would pretend like they're interested they know from the mm-hmm. very beginning of the conversation, they know this isn't going anywhere. We're not going to let him have this amendment. But they'll <laughs> play along like, oh, this is like a very – we thank you for being here. Um, this is like a very interesting amendment. And then they'll give you some lame excuse at the end for why they won't put it on the bill. Like, well, we think this would be more suitable at a different time or whatever. Like, you know, next time we have this legislation come up – you should bring this amendment up and that would be a more appropriate time or whatever. They, they always come up with some lame excuse. When you get that over and over, what do you think happens to members of Congress? They just say, what the heck am I doing? What am I doing? I've got, I got a thousand other things I could be doing. In fact, I could be just spending more time with my family on the phone or like, you know, hanging out with friends or whatever, or doing some other important piece of work or even campaigning, for some of them, right? I could be doing a million other things. They start to think to themselves, why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I offering amendments? And then when they think about how the media aren't going to cover what the real um, details of the legislation are, they also think, why am I reading the legislation? Because if no one else is going to read the legislation, what the heck would I read it for? <laughs> what, what do I gain from it? I know how this is going to play out. It's or, a, yeah, or if I'm just going to vote, if I'm just going to vote yes at the end of it because 
leadership told well, me. Well, think I had about to. it. Here, here's the bill. Okay, it's going to be called like the bill to save children from bad things. Okay, and it's and it's offered <laughs> by Democrats. Some prominent Democrat offers it. Nancy Pelosi says we're going to vote for it. Kevin McCarthy says definitely not. We don't support it or whatever. Who the heck is reading this bill? Who? What? What incentive would anyone have to read it? Because we already know how this plays out. New York Times mm-hmm. says this is a great bill. It has to pass. Fox News says, I can't believe how terrible this bill is. If you are spending your time reading the bill, it is not even logical. Like from a from a um, from the perspective of like how you're using your time. Now, I would spend time doing that, but I'm not doing it because it's actually a, a rational thing to do under the circumstance. I'm doing it because I'm that principled. I I, I believe in it. <laughs> I made a promise to people this is what I was going to do, and I believe in it. And in my heart, it hurts me personally. Like I can't do it. I cannot vote for something without knowing what it is. I can't vote for or against it. I got to know what the bill is. But for a person who's thinking about this from just uh, like the perspective of someone gaming it out, why would they read the bill? What do they get from it? They're they're. They're not going to gain it. If they read the bill and find out if they're a Republican and McCarthy said vote no, if they read the bill and think, oh, this is actually not such a bad bill, it's a good bill. What do they gain? <laughs> what? So they go and say, they go and yeah. say, yeah, I'm going to vote for no, it. Actually, they, if, if they say they're yeah. going to vote for it, how does that help them? Where, where are they going with that? Yeah. It goes nowhere. So, so, yeah, I mean, you've, you've identified like 40 different problems with Congress. Um, as someone, you know, one, like the first rules you learned at CQ, and this is why I still think it's like the best journalism job for anyone new to Congress is you actually do have to read the bill. (laughs) (laughs) Like, so I, and, and, and not only that, um, you have to summarize the bill. Like you actually have to read it and like be able to digest it. Cause like, as you know, sometimes a 1200 page bill is actually more like 10,000 pages because it's like a mess, you know, (laughs) code and you're like, well, what the hell does it, what, you know, delete, this entire paragraph and it's like well that's a sentence i have to now go read like, it's it's all cross references and by the way i tried right, so i tried to yeah. fix that when i was in congress and they yeah. would never take that up i for that yeah, was a fight <laughs> from day one and you know who gave me the most room on that was john boehner when yeah. he allowed yeah. committee reports to be written in the way that i requested and that was a fight we had in the conference and john boehner relented after hearing my position on it so committee reports, I don't know if they're still done this way. Presumably they still are, but they, they change it to look more like track changes because of something I mm-hmm. because of something I pushed. But they could never get the final legislation on the floor to look like that. And that means when you are reading a bill at home, you'll hear that it's a thousand pages, but it's a thousand pages of like gobbledygook. Like on page on yeah. page seven, line three of this act. Subsection yeah. four, delete, delete af- yeah, line after the comma, through. but bef- but before <laughs> the word and, and so like you are, you have to have a whole team to arrange this for you, or you can't get anywhere. And then, I mean, basically, no one in Congress is making their staff do this because it it ends up for the reasons I talked about and you've talked about. It ends up being a waste of time for so many of them. Let's let's take a caller. We've got. As yeah. someone who did it, it it, it is valuable. Oh, I, <laughs> I used to do it. I, I mean, we yeah. did it in my office. My staff and I read yeah. everything we voted on, but that yeah. I promise you, that did not happen in any other office. 
don't think it happened. And you're actually right. It's, it's, it's irrational at some point. I mean, um, and there is, by the way, also, there's another way to do it, which is like, hey, here's the briefer from the <laughs> yeah, but that's right? Like, this is what the bill will do. And but sometimes you don't know that. And by the way, in every almost every omnibus, um, there used to be this like one thing that was like snuck in there, okay? Um, that we'd either learn about like right before the vote or three days afterwards that like no one really even knew about and no one was talking about it. I was like, oh, it, it's actually a very substantive change to you know it would make it it would it would take a whole news cycle of like oh they s- snuck that in there that this little piece and people miss it all the time because it's they're it's basically impossible so you're saying when you were at cq they they had you read everything yeah i mean you you i mean we we would read the bill we'd read the amendment we'd figure out what the amendment would do which by the way is not an easy task like you go to a committee markup and again like delete paragraph like and you don't even sometimes it's like you're reading into code it's like well what does that code actually do and like um deleting some authority of uh CISA or something right and like what does that mean you know so it, it was it is gobbledygook at some level and it's an extremely difficult task but um it was so valuable to have done it um i can also tell you you know really briefly on the on the rules committee thing so i mean this is the this is probably this is the thing i want to talk to you the most about because i know it it frustrates you and and it frustrates me because um this was the one thing I thought the Freedom Caucus got right, which was that you need to fix the process in Congress. <laughs> and, Wait, was it the Freedom uh, Caucus that got it right, or Justin Abasha got it right and tried to put, try, you might tried have, to I push mean, them yeah, in this? I tried to push them in this direction, but go ahead. I, I thought I thought there was so much wisdom to that because it it also you know people think the Freedom Caucus was this far right you know neo fascist movement or something. The truthfully, it started out as a process. Mm-hmm. Uh, organization and it's slowly not even slowly it actually very quickly uh they kind of dropped that and I, I i can think of a couple formative moments where it truly became a more ideologically driven thing but the process was the was the first point and they were it was inarguable right democrats and republicans could basically agree on this that the process was broken that you can't have votes on the floor right or still one of the most inexcusable things that people hear is like we can't give you a vote on that amendment because it passed. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and, and like that, that's just so like, like crazy brain to so many people. They used to um, tell us that all but, the time. We can't let you have that vote right, because it'll right. pass. Cause it, it'll pass. I mean, th- there's some wisdom to it in some ways because you could do poison pill amendments, right? Where you know that, okay, it'll pass with the majority, but then the majority that we were counting on to pass the bill actually hates that amendment. So then, then they're going to vote down the bill. Right. So that's actually the reason why you have a rules committee that's like governing which amendments can get votes. But I mean, I've seen I've seen members take this to the extreme. And I, I have I never figured out why um, you guys weren't more like terrorists about this, because I've seen it done and I've seen it done very effectively. Um, there's <laughs> there's an AUMF. Uh, it was either 2012 or 2013. One, I think it was the one that in which you had your biggest fight um, over um like was it FISA authority or I can't remember exactly which Amash amendment, which iteration this was, but um, Jim McGovern didn't get a vote and he was on the, he was on the committee. He didn't get a vote on withdrawing from Afghanistan or really in, in essence, I think it was um, ending the 2001 authorization for use of military mm-hmm. force. And what he did was, okay, well um, 
there might they might have allowed 200 uh, amendments to the AUMF, but they had to reject another 300. Okay, so it's midnight, and Jim McGovern, out of principle, is calling for a roll call vote on every single one of them. And I never figured out why members haven't thought about this more strategically, which is let's just offer 300 amendments. And if they don't give us a vote on the one that we actually want, then we're going to we're going to make them take 300 roll call votes and stay here until 3 a.m. and make the poor guy's CQ actually manually (laughs) enter roll call votes until 5 a.m. And like, I hate it, but I also like I get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was the that was my thought when Jim McGovern was doing this. It's like, oh, man, this really sucks. But also, like. I'm I'm kind of down with like his principle here yeah, because like, there are ways I guess to 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 skirt the rules. There are, but to do it, you have to have a few. You have to have a large enough group of people who will stick with you on this stuff. And I couldn't yeah. consistently convince a large enough group to stay with me on process fights to to really yeah. push this. The only way you can make change in Congress is to essentially hold the process hostage in a certain way in order to fix Mm -hmm. the process. So you tell them, we're not going to do it your way. We have the votes to stop you. If you can put together – like I'll give you an example. On the Democrats, the Democrats right now have control of the House. But by a very small margin, if the squad and a few others wanted to get together, it wouldn't even take that many people. Ten of them. Could could right, ten, ten of them yeah. could totally transform the rules of the house? Dictate the process. They yeah. could say yeah. right now the squad plus a few others could say right now this is the way it's going to go. We're going to take votes on these things. We're going to run the whole process. Now you couldn't you couldn't guarantee your particular legislation gets the floor, but you could hold the process hostage in such a way that leadership is forced to work with you. And if you are principled mm-hmm. about it, as I wanted the Freedom Caucus to be. You would take the position, not that we just want our stuff on the floor. That was what I tried to tell Mm -hmm. the Freedom Caucus all the time. Look, we need to be principled uh, advocates for process, which means when we go out there and we fight for process, we're fighting not just so Jim Jordan can get an amendment, but we also also want um, AOC AOC AOC. to get her amendment. We also want Ilhan Omar to get her amendment. We want people out there – being part of the legislative process. And that's because I feel so strongly and have since I was interested ever in being in Congress that Congress is supposed to work as a discovery process. And I understand that this is very like strange to people, especially in other countries with their parliamentary systems. And it's increasingly strange to Americans even, this idea that you would have a discovery process for what is the law. But maybe it's my Hayekian nature that I'm just like a libertarian at heart. But I really believe the law needs to be discovered through the process. That you don't go into yeah. a piece of legislation and say, this is it. Take take this it or leave it. it. <laughs> we drew it up in the back room. Now we've got 435 members here and this is it. Here it is. Do you want it? Yes or no? My belief is you you have um, – an amazing thing here. You've taken one person from 435 different places, each person representing like about 800,000 people or so. So you have this wonderful diversity from across the country. Now, it's not perfect. It's not as diverse as the country itself. But you do have a rich diversity in Congress, people from very different places representing very different backgrounds and experiences. 
You brought them into this one place. And now you're going to tell them, no, uh, an 80-year-old white woman is going to write it up and, and Nancy Pelosi. And it's yes or no, and you'd better vote yes. I mean, it's it's an insane yeah. process, and I say the same thing about the Republicans. The idea that we're just going to have yeah. Paul Ryan or Kevin McCarthy or or John Boehner just write something up, and then it's yes or no, is insane. Well, I we have be more yeah. truthful about who actually writes it up. It's three yes, policy I, staffers, and then like you know, oh, the appropriations committee guys are like, yeah, and take this part. And we right, but I this. mean, people like, beholden to the the leadership on right, but they're but the people really making those those formative legislative text uh decisions are are yes that's right i mean it's it's not like nancy pelosi knows the details of the legislation she doesn't and and neither does kevin mccarthy but my point is they're in control of it and the idea that we're going to say that's how our our beautiful democracy is going to work we're going to have all these people come with all their diversity people some of them are immigrants they're from very different backgrounds and then we're going to decide that an old white woman is going to you know take give us it's yeah hold all all the cards and give us take it or leave it legislation i mean no offense to nancy pelosi or older white women like they should be part of the process too she should have a she should have a vote i mean she should have a vote too clearly how it's designed right it was congress is designed to have that iterative process and like the whole point is to have yeah you know yeah nancy there's a lot of explicit rules about well, how people can introduce legislation and amending legislation, and that's how it's supposed to work. This is this is totally yeah. the bastardization of Nancy of the Pelosi, process, and it's happened. One hundred percent. Nancy Pelosi should have a vote too. I'm not saying she shouldn't, but she should be just part of the process. And if you look at the rules of the House, how they were originally designed, it was a much more free flowing institution. That's that's the that's the design of the House. Now it used to be less public facing in a sense. In other words, people would come here mm-hmm. from across the country. There was no television. There was no internet. Um, you would make these deals as part of this. It's almost like in some sense it was more closed off, but also more deliberative. Like, like yeah. it was, it was more hidden from the public. They could get away with more like crazy stuff if they wanted to. Honestly, they probably did. They probably <laughs> did a lot of times in the past. However, there was some sense in which it was more deliberative. I'm not saying it was more diverse in the past because certainly the current Congress has more diverse membership, but we're not using that diversity. Like we have a more diverse mm-hmm. membership and it's not being used. And I don't just mean ethnic or racial diversity. I mean all sorts of diversity, ideological diversity. It is a more diverse Congress, but we're not using the diversity at all. We're just – we're hiding it and um, and shielding – we're I mean, shielding legislation way, from it. That so that's all that's true. The only thing I would say is Congress has become less of a legislative tool and more of a like building public support, public yes. opinion. Um, I mean, it's you know they have these fights on the floor, and they and sometimes they hold votes right uh, just for this very purpose of like trying to foment uh, public support for things or or. Um, you know, change opinions. I mean, that, that's really what this has become. And, and to your point about, you know, people coming here to be tweeters, right. Professional tweeters or professional Instagram live, uh, celebrities. Um, like that's a very real dynamic because that's 
the that's really the choice they have, right? You're not going to come to Congress and be a master legislator because that option is not available to you. Like maybe if you stick around for 20 to 30 years and like play the game, right? Like maybe you get to get, you get to sit in the room and, and help write some legislation. But um, by and large, like you come here and you get to raise money and you get to make a few speeches on the floor and if you play nice and you ask the speaker in the right way, maybe she gets she lets you sponsor an amendment or a pointless land transfer bill or something or rename a post office in your district. I mean, it's it's what we're talking about here um, is changing very small things on the margins for a very long time before you actually get the chance to really address real problems in this yeah. country. We've got Nicholas who's been waiting here patiently. Let's let's see if we can take. Yeah, let's, let's see. see if he's still still waiting. Nicholas, are you there? Hey, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted because you guys are really talking a lot about the like the House of Representatives, right? But you know, we also have the Senate as well, and I think because you know, especially in the last couple of years, that's felt like the more, um, especially since the Democrats have you know taken full control of the government, it's been where a lot of like the fire or a lot of the action has been because. It, the margin is so small there, and uh, because of the the weird way that like reconciliation works, and the fact that we have the filibuster, and I feel like a lot of what you know you guys are talking about with the House of Representatives and stuff, like how much does that even really matter if you need to get sixty votes in the Senate anyway? So doesn't for the most part, since we're such a polarized country now, and we're so like down the middle almost. It's almost yeah. like the only bills that are going to get done are the ones using this wacky uh, reconciliation process, which has all sorts of issues and led to like these big standoffs between, um, uh, you know, in the infrastructure debate, whether yeah. do we pass the reconciliation first or do we pass the the uh, the bipartisan bill first? And it's like holding it's like that, you know, that scene from the office, if you know, where they're all holding guns. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and but. It's like almost like well, if you're a representative in the House of in the House of Representatives, like how much does any of what you actually do matter if it's Joe Manchin at the end of the day who says yes or no to everything on this one particular bill that they only get one shot at? It just seems like that seems like a very big part of the story as well, and not yeah. just this. Do you want, do you well, want yeah, to take since, the first shot? I have yeah, since I'm a, rep- <laughs> a former representative, I'll I'll take it. I I tend to speak about the House of Representatives because it's what I know. Right. I'm not saying the Senate doesn't have its own process problems. It certainly does. But I know the House of Representatives because I serve there. And I see the House of Representatives as a place that is more diverse. You have a much more diverse body in the House than you do in the Senate. And you have a much greater ability to hear from people who have very different takes. As soon as you're a senator representing an entire state, you tend to have more conventional views on things. In other words, you're you're going with the flow a little bit. Even the senators who are more radical, let's say in the Senate, are not as radical as the members of the House uh, because there's just a difference in the way it's structured. You're representing a bigger population. So I would love to see the House become a place that utilizes that diversity because that's where you're going to get the more radical ideas. And we do need radical ideas from time to time. And some of that comes from the left and some of it comes from the right. And some of it comes from the center. But we need those radical ideas because change only comes through the process of something that was not being accepted at all, something that was um, considered 
off limits, becoming uh, more acceptable and eventually becoming mainstream. That's how change happens. That's how all progress really happens. It's from like one or two people saying, this is what we should be doing and testing it out. In the Senate, you don't have as much ability to do that because the people are already a little more conventional. You don't have as many of those ideas. Now, I'm a firm believer that the Senate should actually reduce um, the use of the 60-vote threshold. I think that it's insane how they do it now, where everything is basically an automatic filibuster. I think you shouldn't get rid of the filibuster completely. But force them to work for it in some way, like in the old days. Uh, require them to give very long speeches and get get tired out. Instead, today, you have essentially a, a filibuster that's on autopilot, where the default is a 60-vote requirement, and um, and it's abnormal to have just a simple majority requirement. So my my view is they've got this all wrong when it comes to how to use the filibuster. Like... It is weird to me that Supreme Court justices require only 51, but a piece of legislation requires 60. That doesn't seem right. A Supreme Court justice is there for life. There's only nine of them. These people can make a big impact for many, many years. A piece of legislation that passes this year can be removed next year. Like You just... You could just get a different group of people and say, I don't like this legislation anymore. Let's get rid of it. To get rid of Supreme Court justice, you'd have to impeach the person. So it seems weird to me that we've decided, and it seems to be a consensus actually, not just that we've decided. People seem to take it for granted almost. Like, oh, of course, Supreme Court justices should be 51 votes, but legislation, that should be at 60. At least a lot of people. I know there are people who don't like the filibuster at all. But a lot of people have taken it for granted and said, yeah, that's that's the normal way of of doing things. I think that's insane. I think legislation should more often just be a simple majority. And if you don't like it, then get a different majority. Let people, I I say, let people get what they deserve. In other words, if voters vote for someone who's going to do something really crappy to them, let them pay, you know, let them take it. Okay. You voted in a bunch of Democrats. Here's what you're going to get. And if you don't like it, Well, you better not vote them in again. You better vote in some different people who will undo the crap they just did. Let them feel it. That's that's how I feel. Yeah, one thing I was like kind of thinking of with that is that like right now there's like nobody has any skin in the game in Congress. Because they never pass it. They never pass anything anyway. Right. And I know you kind of took maybe a little shot at the parliamentary sort of systems, but like regardless of what you think of those and they're kind of weird in, in from American perspective in some ways, since it's basically elected dictatorship in some ways. But at least there's like accountability at the end of the day where if something gets passed and the people hate it, then, well, they can elect somebody new. But I, I don't know. That's something I was they, thinking my, about. My only my only issue with that uh, is that if you ask people, you know, what's in this bill? Or what is this doing? You know, I, 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 this is probably a sore subject for you, but let's let's just bring up AHCA, okay? Um, if that had passed, right? People don't really know how that like would have affected them, and they it would have come into effect, and there'd be a lot of people who was like, well, it didn't really affect my life because I have private insurance, and like I don't feel these effects, and um, so it that's that's sort of a. Um, It'd be that would that system would work where we vote 
bad things into law and give people what they voted for if we had a, like a rational system where people actually knew what these things were like what the legislation that they are the people that they voted in are actually supporting and doing and like what the effects are but a lot of times we don't know those effects we don't feel them yeah, at all Matt, i agree. Um, i mean so- i agree with you that most people don't necessarily know what has happened or how it affects them but isn't that a commentary about the legislation like, I mean, it's a commentary about a lot like, of things. Like but, maybe uh, the legi- <laughs> like, uh, to go back to the AHCA, for example, part of the reason something like that wouldn't have a huge impact is because both sides were exaggerating. And I don't want to just get on this topic. Both sides were exaggerating. Both sides were exaggerating. <laughs> the left had an incentive to say that it was totally undoing Obamacare, et cetera, because they wanted to scare voters into thinking this is – Horrific, and the right had an incentive to say we're finally repealing Obamacare because that's what they had promised. So there was an incentive for each side to overstate the impact when actually you're getting like eighty or ninety percent or more. Um, I calculated it as more when I looked at it of Obamacare, but that's just an example. If you had something that really um, made a big difference legislatively, don't you think people would notice it? Like if it really. Sure, but but part of the problem too is how we actually legislate is um, a lot of like log rolling, and we make a change to law that uh, might benefit California, and you go along with that because you're waiting for that the time when you get the the bill that benefits Michigan, and voters can't make really rational decisions about you know uh, you know saying I'm going to vote these people in and and um, Basically, I, I think that kind of incentivizes like earmarks to this crazy degree where you just play along with the game and you spend a bunch of money because uh, locally, you know, you got you got five million dollars for this uh, great fishing and outdoor experience center in your district. And meanwhile, you approved, you know, uh, five billion dollars elsewhere because that's voters are measuring it on their lives and you're not responsible to every voter. You're just responsible to your district and your, your constituents. Sure. So it's, it, it's a weird, it's a weird, you know, we get that a lot. Can I, I actually, can I actually make a point? Yeah. Cause like you said that ultimately they're, they're responsible to their constituents, but like, isn't our politics so nationalized at this point? Like how much does, Oh great. They have, you know, in an 800,000 person district, Aren't they just voting for representatives based on who they're voting for president anyway? Like, how much does that matter? Uh, largely, yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. Um, I would also point out that um, our current system allows politicians to choose their voters to to a large extent. Where, um, you know, I don't know if you ever ex- you probably never experienced a no. I had one right at the beginning. Uh, oh, because yeah, Michigan's they, weird, right? But they, but Michigan has its, an actual now. Now we do, but at first we did not, and the Republicans tried to make my district more democratic thinking that if they made it closer to a 50 50 district, I would get ousted. Like what would happen is Mm -hmm. maybe the Democrats would beat me for one year and then they'd get it back. You know, it would be a moderately Republican district, but what ended up happening actually was as they put more Democrats into the district, it became um, more of a lock for me compared to any other Republican because they miscalculated. Mm -hmm. They thought the libertarian brand would do worse with Democrats when actually it does better, but that's a that's a totally that's a totally different story. Yeah, I mean it's a weird, uh, but I, my point is basically that um, we've got a system that you know you support your party, and generally speaking, people will play nice with you and will help you out, 
and make sure that your district's safe and that your voters are going to go for you. And we just kind of perpetuate the same system here. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It was really great. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Nicholas. All right. We've got Clint. Maybe we don't. <laughs> right, it usually takes a second. Let's see. You there, Clint? Oh, yeah. I think, Clint, you're there. think so, Clint. You got, oh. You were you were there for a second, Clint. Clint, I'm just re- I'm just realizing how much I like the name Clint. <laughs> okay, can you hear me now? Oh, yes. Yep. All right. Sorry about that. Technical difficulties. No problem. Um, trying to sneak in a question while I'm at work. Okay, so this question's for you, Justin. Um, eh, for both of you, because uh, Matt, you work on the Hill as a reporter. Um, so Justin, you were the chair person of the liberty caucus can you like give me a brief description what it was like to work in that caucus and what it was like to work with like some of those representatives like you had congressman warren davidson you had uh congressman um who's now the governor of uh colorado um jared polis and then you have uh yes jared polis and then uh congressman uh thomas massey and my follow-up would be, my too soon to be follow-up would be, how come you didn't get Tulsi Gabbard on that caucus? Um, so, yeah, that's my <laughs> well, quick those, question. Those, that is a great question. <laughs> so, to, for you. those – thanks, Clint. So, for those who are listening, there were there were two caucuses that I was primarily a part of. I was a part of some other caucus. Uh, Matt mentioned the Second Amendment caucus. But the, the main caucuses I was involved with were the House Freedom Caucus and the House Liberty Caucus. The House Freedom Caucus – was conceived as a, and this is not what Clint is asking about, but the House Freedom Caucus, so everyone knows, is a different thing from the House Liberty Caucus. The Freedom Caucus was conceived as a process-oriented caucus. That's really why it was started. That's really what I tried to emphasize when I was um, uh, working on it with those guys at the beginning. I wrote the mission statement. It was very process-oriented. The House Liberty Caucus was a libertarian caucus. The point was libertarianism. How can we uh, expand libertarianism within the House of Representatives? And so you named some people, Warren Davidson, Thomas Massey, Jared Polis. The reason these guys were in the caucus was because their voting record was pretty libertarian. Now, if, if I look at all their voting records, and I'm only talking about the time that I was there serving with them. I haven't served there in you know uh, a couple – years almost now. So I, I don't know what they're like now. I can't, I can't speak for while they're voting now, but while I served with them, they had pretty libertarian voting records. Thomas Massey especially had a, a quite libertarian voting record. Um, and you could see a, a marked difference, for example, between him and any of the other members to, to be fair. Like he was considerably more libertarian based on the votes I was looking at. Now, in the Liberty Caucus, yeah. in the Liberty Caucus, I kept a scorecard. And reporters, I don't think reporters knew about this. I kept it private. Um, <laughs> I didn't really want to make it public because I was worried at the time that leadership or even reporters might make an issue out of it if they understood that I had a scorecard on all of my colleagues. 
Um, yeah. Yeah, I probably would have read <laughs> because I would love to read that story. Because, I would have read that like a because it might be viewed as exerting some kind of influence on them or whatever, as though they're not getting influence from everyone else. Anyways, they're already getting massive. Like the influence I have is nothing compared to the influence that the leadership team can exert or or someone else. Yeah, her action. Her action or someone else. So, um, but I had a scorecard, and someone like Jared Polis, who is the governor of Colorado now. And I know there are still libertarians who do, do not want to believe this. But when I look at voting records, I'm looking at the whole record, and we're talking about um, over thousands of votes over many years. And I'm not scoring every vote, but I'm looking at the votes that I think are best representative of libertarian philosophy. And whether you should vote yes or no, I'm scoring it based on what I think is the right vote. Someone like Jared Polis ended up consistently in, say, the top 10 or so in the entire House of Representatives, and he's a Democrat. People don't know that, but I could rely on Jared Polis on vote after vote after vote on libertarian issues. In fact, he would come to me and say, like, what is the libertarian perspective? We talk about it. Um, He knew it often just naturally. I don't even have to influence him on a lot of it. but if you look back, you'll see that. Now, Tulsi Gabbard has a reputation for being very libertarian, but actually her score did not put her high enough to be in the House Liberty Caucus. You have to you have yeah. to reach a certain point to get into the caucus. And I was very really? and I was very generous. Like it <laughs> after after Massey and say Sanford and Labrador and Mulvaney, there were a few who were pretty libertarian consistently, but after those top few, it starts to drop off rapidly. Now um, Jared Polis was pretty high, but once you start to get below Jared Polis, like you start to see a very rapid decline. Um, so someone like Tulsi, for all of her reputation, had something like a fifty percent. Uh, I'm not even sure she had 50%. I'd have to go back and look. But she had a she had a score that was not high enough to get into the Liberty Caucus. And that's why this should be in like a story. It, sh- it should that's be. Why, well, uh, Matt should well hold on. I think I'm going to write a story before Matt does. But but <laughs> here's the deal. Um what I would say to people who are listening is rhetoric is one thing and how you vote is another thing. It's so easy, and I tweeted about this the other day, and like some libertarians even got upset with me when I tweeted this. It is so easy to say you are principled. It is so easy to go out and say, look at how libertarian I am, or look how conservative I am, or look how progressive I am. But when push comes to shove and you have to vote, that is a totally different world. There are different pressures facing you, and so many people will say one thing and then go do another thing. Now, I'm not t- – this is not a shot at Tulsi because her score was still better than a lot of people in Congress. What I'm telling you is that she wasn't high enough to get into the Liberty Caucus. That's, she still was probably in the top, say, 20 percent or something in Congress. But it just goes to show you how weak Congress is generally on libertarian issues. But um, But yeah – it was it was a libertarian caucus, and you had to have a high enough score to get into the caucus. 
and um, and I kept annual scores and I kept lifetime scores. So I I've got a I've got all that information. <laughs> all. And you wouldn't believe how many people I see now, especially in this world, because some of them have gone on to become um, governor. Go- the governor. Some of people Florida. have gone on to be governors <laughs> of states of of important states. Um, all the states are important, of course, but uh, some of them have gone on to become governors. Some of them have gone on to become political commentators. Some of them have gone on to be yeah, sort of like media darlings of the right or the left. And when you look at the actual voting records, it doesn't line up. You know, when I see someone go out there and say like, can you believe what Trudeau did shutting down bank accounts and all this stuff? And then I'm like, hey, you know, we had a vote on something just like that in, uh, you know, 2016, 2015 or something like I'll look back and I'll say, look, we had a vote that was pretty close to this issue. And this person who's, who's yeah. griping about it right now voted the wrong way. So what are they saying now? Like, how does it, how does it make any sense? Are they just opportunists? They're hoping no one's going to notice or have they had a real change of heart? You know, this is the topic we talked about earlier. I tend to think people are opportunists more than they have change of heart. Uh, Matt seems to be a little more gracious than I am with, uh, with how people to, I just don't, I'm, I'm very cynical about politicians. Um, I think that for the most part, when they change their opinions, there are rare occasions where someone really changed an opinion, but I think they better have really strong evidence for why they changed their opinion. Like there better be some kind of, some kind of real examination of their life. In other words, you can't change your opinion without saying, looking back on my life, this is why I was wrong about these things. Here's where I erred. If someone says something like that and says like, yeah, this was foolish of me. I understand where I was wrong. You can start to accept the mistake. But a lot of people are just like switching on a dime and not even talking about their past. It's like, uh, you know, it's like their past and, is just be like memory is- hold. You don't, you don't even... But this is where this is where I'd say you're you're in a sort of special class because um, one of the things you learn about Congress if you hang around long enough is that a lot of members like the margin between them voting yes and no is sometimes very random, right? <laughs> a member who wakes up on the wrong side of bed, basically. Um, I I know a, a, a member who uh, you might remember this vote. It was it was an atrocious bill how it was written, but I can't remember the exact the 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 um, the, the intent was to. Um, allow basically someone who goes missing, someone like say kidnapped, we could access their phone and track them. And it was written after the the name of the bill was actually after someone who this had happened to. uh, And like, you know, Verizon was like, we're we're unable to give you that information without them agreeing or whatever. Uh, And then this person was killed. So it's a a horrible situation, but like there are libertarian concerns and Republicans came around to this idea. I think the bill was actually voted down on the floor because it was so poorly written. But um, I remember coming across a member and being like, are you going to vote yes or no on this? And the member was like, well, uh, you know, between us, I'm going to vote. I'm I'm going to vote uh, yes, but only because I I ran into the parents of the person, like yeah, in, in the hallway. Like, there's so many random weird things that happen in Congress that get someone to yes or get someone to no, and sometimes it's really not a principled stand, or it's not like I'm you know I'm tearing on my hair and having a, a this like. Uh, introspective moment and in, in deciding that I, I've I've erred in my ways. Like it, it's sometimes so stupid and random yeah. and weird. One hundred percent. Yeah. So, 
But I would say you're different in that in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I, there's some ways in which in which I had no input on my own votes in the sense that I had a set of principles I followed. So I used to mm-hmm. tell my staff, we just put the vote – we put the bill through the machine and whatever pops out yeah. is how we vote. And that led to my voting against you know, major groups that had been supporting me previously. I had um, Right to Life, the NRA – uh, the Chamber of Commerce, I don't know if they ever supported me, but the Farm Bureau at different points, <laughs> where I just had to take votes against their legislation for various reasons. And it wasn't a matter of like, what do I personally think? Like, I'm pro-life, but, you know, if the bill is bad, I'm voting no. And I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just not going to support it. So I, I don't know. That's just, that's how I operated. But but you were unique well, in that, is what I'm, is what well, I'm trying I to have, say. I have, thanks. I, uh, I, I don't know. If I don't know if it is a. I don't know if it is a compliment. Um, yeah. In in some ways, it's just my my brain works a little differently like that. But um, Clint, anything else? Yeah. Sorry, Clint. You're breaking up a little bit. All right. Yeah, I said go ahead and write that story. Oh yeah, well, I'll, I'll do that. Thanks. It'll it'll be a meme on Facebook. So yeah, definitely uh definitely get that story out there. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks, Clint. So so Matt, we've been going for a while. Uh, yeah, I think it's yeah. I've up, been right? I you know I could go another two hours with you, but I'll wrap it up. I want <laughs> I wanted to ask you one last thing before we go, which is um, and I have so many questions I didn't get to, but. Why do you think it is that people generally, I have found, overestimate how good their own representative is? So I, I, I hear <laughs> I mean, this, this is, all the time. This is literally, you, like people will say to me, yeah. I'll go around the country, I'll be visiting different places, and I'll be in a district, and they'll say to me something like, you know, the only good members of Congress, the only ones I like are you, Thomas Massey, um, you know, Mark Sanford, and then they'll say some name, and it's just some random name that has nothing to do with any of the rest of us. And I, I've tried to figure out why that is. I have some ideas, but what do you think the the issue is? So, um, I, I, I don't know if you studied much political science, but there's actually a very famous formative um, article on this. Uh, I think it's uh, Fenno, Richard Fenno. I think it was his name. Uh, it's if, as Ralph Nader says, Congress is the broken branch. How come we love our congressmen but hate Congress? Yep. Okay, this is an actual phenomenon that people, you know, oh, I hate Congress. Throw their bum bums out. But you know, I really do love my my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I had this experience. I I remember the very uh, like formative uh, experience with Pete Sessions, where I met some people from like North Dallas who were like, I hate Congress. I hate everything about it. We love Pete. Like he's he's the best. Um, it's a very weird phenomenon. Uh, I, I mean, there's a political, again, there's a political science answer to it, but frankly, um, I think the member, you know, there's all sorts of benefits to being an incumbent and to being in Congress and communicating with your staff. And again, you get to, you know, throw your name on the, on the $5 million fishing and outdoor expedition center, right. With, uh, earmarks or something, but you're communicating with your staff, you're, uh, with your constituents, um, you're, hearing their concerns. Sometimes you get to actually address real problems in their life. Hey, I can't get my passport. Uh, can you solve this? Hey, I, I, I'm having a social security issue. 
So like people solve those issues. And I don't know if people really understand the constituent services side of this too, but that's a real element for people. Like I'll always vote for this guy. He solved that visa issue I had. And like, you know, um, so there's all sorts of elements of this, but the big thing I I really do think is um, we have members of Congress who in some ways have chosen their voters. Uh, The voters do get to choose them to some extent um, this is a, someone who comes from their area largely, who understands how they talk, uh, their concerns, and they can actually uh, represent them in a, in a real way. Whereas, you know, um, someone just sees Marjorie Taylor Greene spotting off and like can't even believe that, um, you know, someone would ever vote for her. But in North Georgia, like that might be how they talk. Like that, that might be, you know, and, and I think um, I've heard this, this anecdote before that Marjorie Taylor Greene's always like, you know, I don't get why I'm getting so much attention because like, this is how we all talk at football games where I'm from, you know, like uh, that's a real element. And I, I, I really do think that's a, a special part of Congress too. Uh, we're so frustrated by Congress writ large and the, and, and there's, as we've laid out in painstaking detail tonight, there are real issues with the process and the incentives. Um, it's broken. It's, it's, we all agree on that, but um, I, I do think there's to real extent, you know, someone, in their district, like, Oh, I really like that guy. He, I, I spoke to him. He, he listened to me, you know, he helped me with that passport issue. <laughs> like there's all sorts of incentives for that. That That's the best answer I can give. But, uh, the, the Fenno article, <laughs> you might want to check yeah. that out. Well, Matt, we've said it all. <laughs> we've said it all. We've covered, uh, we've covered everything. We covered everything related to Congress. There's no more, there's no that's more to be it. said. We solved it all. No more can be said about Congress. I think we yeah. solved it. That's well, um, I know that actually I could go on for another like six, seven hours like this, but um, I know me too. But we'll have to we'll have to end it here, and maybe someday we'll do it again. But I want right. to I want to say uh, thank you for being on, and people can follow you on Twitter at mep fuller or at mep fuller. Yeah, yeah sure. so follow. You don't have you don't, to. Don't, oh, don't, don't worry never about mind. It. Don't follow him. He doesn't want you. Doesn't want you following him. But. <laughs> Um, <laughs> he doesn't want any audience capture here. So yeah. if you guys go go there and follow him, he might have a to- totally different audience and have to take a totally different perspective on things. So it could be exactly. a bad bad thing. Well, I enjoyed having you here, and yeah, and we'll catch it. up again soon. Great All chat. Right. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Yep, appreciate bye. it. Thanks, thanks, everyone.